0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. XM. We do it every week. We have been doing it every week for coming up in seven years, guys. We're seven years, I like it, next week or two weeks. We're real close up on it. This is Cade Massey. Got the whole crew here Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner, professors, all at the Wharton School. We have been doing this for a little while, and we're going to keep doing it. We've been doing it virtually since March, almost a year. We're going to do a year anniversary of that sad thing coming up soon. But Zoom has cooperated enough to keep the ball rolling, and uh, we have taken up the battle with COVID by doing a half-hour segment in our first quarter for about the last year we've got a normal show in that we're going to do that we're going to do a couple of uh, quarters of open topics and we'll end with an interview as we have been for the last year in the fourth quarter brad spielberger brad is a new analyst salary cap analyst for pro football focus Afternoon, guys. We're recording this on Monday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday. Um, I I missed last week. I missed the chance to visit with you guys. Glad to be back. I'm very curious. It feels like things are moving in the world of COVID-19. I'm very curious what you're paying attention to.
0: Well, Eric uh, uh, called me with this happy news midweek, and he said, did you hear? Did you hear? And I'm like, what? And the announcement was that one shot of Pfizer seems to be effective. Um, The data seems to be quite effective, which is kind of we've been talking about that for a long time. And uh, we actually said more or less that based on historical viruses. Um, That's generally how it works. Vaccines, not viruses. Vaccines generally work with one shot, and then you need a booster in a few months. So that seemed to be confirmatory of that hypothesis and very
2: hold on, Adi, when you say that are you talking about the israeli study
0: yeah i think it's israeli study that, that and i think but pfizer is also doing the same thing there's a there's a there may have been more than one at this point but i i think we're referring to the israeli study so and you're the, you're, you're talking, talking about kind of, of they're,
3: they're
2: striking numbers right they're saying something like 83 percent effective against symptomatic uh cases after like Four weeks, I think. Do I have those numbers approximately right?
1: Those are exactly the right numbers.
2: Okay. Well, that is strikingly good news, and it has it has it has it has raised the chorus calling for some change in the policies because the idea is we get a lot more people protected if we if we forwent the the second shots. I mean, something like sixteen million of the sixty three eighteen million, maybe eighteen million of the sixty three million that the U.S. have given so far were second shots and so the the question is kind of like what else could we have done with those 16 or 18 million shots what could that have translated into if the if the guys were already protected enough without them
4: and and i mean this booster so i mean you sort of said the historical kind of expectation is that like one shot would have worked and then we'd have a fall booster i mean i get flu vaccines are like kind of my you know main historical reference point these
0: are ones that just don't don't even need the booster right well, so, flu is, flu is funny business because flu is a season and then it's over and then you get the next flu in the next year. So you don't boost uh, for the flu season that's, that's already, you know, disappeared. The flu has lots of different and change, interchangeable parts. There's the H part, the N part, and they're very different each year. And you got to get the right, if you don't get the right vaccine, it doesn't work at all, which is why it, which is why, um, uh, so many people are, you know, the flu flu vaccine is a guesswork. Um, this is much, much, much less. Um, um, it doesn't change nearly as much. The mutations are very small. Not that they don't matter, but they're much smaller relative to the flu vaccine mutation. So the idea is you get a booster. Now, we might end up getting more vaccines along the way if it does mutate sufficiently enough to warrant it. But that's all speculation.
4: Yeah. And I mean, I guess some of the motivation for like maybe not giving people their second shot is that's more people we can give the first shot to. That's and it. Not have the- <laughs> Resources, but I mean, like, is it, how much is that kicking? Like, are these boosters going to be available in four months when we need them? Like, well, if we if we switched overnight to like a one shot regime, then all of a sudden we need, you know, we're going to need four months from now that many more booster shots, right?
0: Well, well, Pfizer claims to be ramping up production. I mean, that was, right. that's the basic idea. Push it down four months down the road. There's many more available. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps. I thought the
1: number was that. I thought by the end of, certainly by the end of the year, but I even thought by the end of the summer, the U.S. had ordered 600 million doses, which would provide, obviously, 300 million people two doses. And so, you know, look, it, it gets back to we're learning more and more that one dose seems to be quite efficacious um you know which one would you rather have a bet would you rather have 25% of the people get it get two doses or 50% have one because i you know i i keep it's not complaining i keep getting concerned because you know i put up a chart from the center of disease control right in our rundown that says at the current pace of vaccinations it'll take until end of july until 50% of the population has their first dose 50% mm-hmm. Now, to me, I'm not sure I'm in that 50%. Let's start with that. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. But that's the first dose. And so this idea that I've heard people say, oh, you know, it's, everyone will get it by the end of April. Then they said May. Then they said end of July. I'm just telling you directly from the CDC, 70%, which many people think might get a herd immunity, although we'll talk about that in a second, not until October.
2: Yeah. So, by the well, way, I mean, let's just know where we are right now because we can we can say on the way to 50 percent, 50 percent by July, we're at, you know, 13, 14 percent. So we, 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 we don't need to belabor this right now, but you can download these stats from the CDC. And two weeks ago, I had the wrong numbers. We, were, we ran into this trouble because it was the total shots administered per person which is double counting the second shot. What you want to know is how many people have had at least
1: one shot. Well, I know the answer. So, I, I, so for example, I looked at the data. It maxes out, interestingly, at Alaska at 20%. It minimizes at Tennessee at about 11%. And Cade's right. 90% of the states are in between like 13 and 15%. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's just kind of where, with one shot, that's just kind of where we are right now.
2: Yeah, it gives a good picture of where we are. And there is some spread across the straits, but it's really, it's really pretty well compressed between 12 and 16 or so 13 and 15 something like that and we're slowly and obviously things got slowed down with the weather in the last 10 days or so but we, Eric you mentioned this herd immunity thing and obviously getting a lot more conversation lately there was a prominent article in the Wall Street Journal about yeah. Johns Hopkins professor in the last week who argued we, we're going to be there m- much close most, much sooner than people think so do you guys buy can we unpack this argument a little bit and well, then can, can we do you
1: buy? yeah it? I'll go the first part about the unpacking part his argument which may be right is that you know the number of cases Predicted that U.S. has had is something like 28 million. That's a positive test. His comment is it could be four or five times that number, which would obviously make it more towards half the U.S. population has had COVID. And then, assuming you knew which half, let's we'll get to that in a second. Assuming you knew which half, if you vaccinated 25%, last time I checked, 50% plus 25% is 75%. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just saying if you want (laughs) to base the argument to its simplest form, that's what he's arguing. Yeah. Yeah, there's all kinds of issues about who's getting the vaccine Mm. and another question that's absolutely related and then i want to hear shane and i's you guys thoughts on this if maybe the reason these vaccines are so effective maybe he's right in one dimension that really what's happening is one dose plus covid is really effective if you've yeah. had COVID and you have antibodies, then one dose. But give one dose to Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, who's not had it, as far as we know. Then maybe that we don't get to eighty-five percent. No, 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 no,
0: Eric. No, it's 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 control treatment versus control percentage. It's not assuming that both treatment and control have the same background. It's it's that's what it's that's so that's what it's based a, you're on. You're saying the differential effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Problem, it doesn't so. mean it's eighty-five percent if you get exposed. It means it's if you have a treatment population and a control population, one population, is 85 percent less than the other that's what it means okay
1: so then it doesn't matter if people's pre covid assuming those are balanced those would be but, balanced
0: but-, but i'll just yeah. want to point out that there are just a couple of things that you said which i actually think it's more like a third why do i be space that i don't know i could talk but mostly i'm just guessing not 50 percent of the population you um, oh, are you saying what is a third not a 50? third of the population has had COVID. that because would be so, hold my on.
2: we have 25 percent of tested positive no
0: no, no, no. We no, have. No, no. It's about thirty million. It's about ten percent. Ten percent.
2: Ten percent. Okay, so ten percent have tested positive.
0: Yeah, so we and we I would, I would triple tested. that. Okay, so
2: you're, you're going to thirty three. That's. It. I've heard some. You know, his, his multiplier was pretty
0: aggressive. I would say. I've heard some uh-huh. other
2: folks say between two and four. And so let's go with Audis three. That's going to get us to thirty three percent have had it, whether or not they reported it.
0: <laughs> now we're not doing antibody testing before you get vaccinated. So, and we're also only we're based we're doing no discouragement of people who've gotten um, recent even recently um, exposed to get the vaccine practically none is from what i understand although the official guideline is three months so if you've been if you had covid in the last three months they're asking you to defer but people are not doing it they're
1: not and it is a question by the way it is you go you can go into the pennsylvania covid website they do ask you that question and i you know look i'm not old enough but i typed in age as if i was old enough and then start to ask i answered that Mm -hmm. question specifically and it says you're not eligible now okay then i click to the no oh you can have your vaccine now yes so just lie i mean who's gonna you know just (laughs) no it's it's without a
0: question so i will say you know getting we talked about this a little bit about the advantages that israel had one thing is it's socialist medicine um it has a private component you can order that but basically it's socialist they know everybody who got positively tested and when and they didn't allow anyone to get get the vaccine if they were in the in that zone and now of course they're starting to open it up
2: Adi, where I think you were taking us is, is that you can't just stack them neatly on top of each other. No. Eric, Eric, Eric was owning that up front, by the way. But like, yeah, he, I said that not, you can. Adi, of
0: course Adi, he was. Yeah.
2: Adi was saying these are basically competing risks that are independent. And so if we're going to go through the numbers, we have to treat them that way. And so what is it, where does that take us, Adi? Keep, keep going.
0: Well, I mean, so basically the problem is, is that we're not really looking. We're looking at the – we're not additive because, it, because we're just essentially vaccinating almost everyone who comes forward. So we have to subtract off the intersection. We're double counting. That's yeah. the classic uh, problem. So I think that that um, I don't think we're going to get to herd immunity as fast as if it, 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 that we would have if we had said, if listen, if you had it, you're not allowed to get it at least well, for. Just to be clear, okay, so if, you yeah,
1: randomly, if you were randomly vaccinating people. Right. Mm-hmm. If you think one third of the people have it, then yeah. one third of the people you vaccinated would have. That's it. right. So <laughs> instead of saying we vaccinated 13 percent, let's subtract off a third of that. And so now mm-hmm. we're down to nine percent of the people we're vaccinating that haven't have covid. And now if you want to add that to the yeah. 33 percent, maybe assuming they're independent, which I don't. But let's assume they were or random. Then you, now you're starting to get some 40.
0: But there's I think we'll 20. need to get 70 total. But it's actually going to
4: help us because the people getting, you know, again, and this is my point. It's like, what are we actually trying to get to? We're tossing around numbers like 75 percent for herd immunity. Every value for herd immunity you know, that we need that I've heard over 50% has been based on this like model where every single person has an equal chance of spreading COVID. Like it just does not acknowledge the reality of the situation. And I think we don't, you know, I think we're, we're certainly not getting to herd immunity as fast as we could be. Like if we weren't doing, you know, like Audie suggested, like ways we could get to herd immunity faster, but I think we're going to get to herd immunity fast because I don't think we actually need as high a percentage. Right of the population in order to achieve herd immunity because we're basically more or less vaccinating the right people like we're, we're hitting the super spreaders we're hitting all this stuff well, And you know, under a model where the super spreaders are the ones getting vaccinated early we're not going to need that i mean look at the what the look at the how the numbers are looking right now look at like in the last 14 we like days what the like
0: case rate what the death rate are going to we're already seeing it happen not clear that that's due to the vaccine. It just could be the this third wave just starting to peter. Um, it's got to be in part to the vaccine, but every other country's more or less seeing the same same turn, regardless of the rates at which they're vaccinating. But of course, there's well, right. different I'm lockdowns. Just, so, I'm just saying, like, yeah. uh, like you know, I
4: mean, you know, I guess I'm arguing that. I mean, almost every country is probably like
0: vaccinated. What like. Five percent of their population by this point. I don't think so. No, I, no. We, no not at all. We we kind of cornered the market on the Pfizer and the Moderna. And, and, and then I the, think the the most action in terms of achieving herd
4: immunity is in the first two to three to four percent of the people you vaccinate because
0: you're hitting the people. Mostly. Why do you, Why do you think that healthcare?
1: You, healthcare you, healthcare you, workers.
0: I don't think they're the super. I think they're part of the super spreaders. I think they're. I hardly think that at all. I think that the super spreaders are are people live in crowded conditions.
2: And are forced oh, to work right. in
0: certain situations,
2: sure. and who are just reckless. Uh, well, also,
0: dozens. I mean, uh, I just I think that crowded communities, cities, uh, people poor who have to go to work in their jobs and come back to apartment buildings that are that are that many you know many people crowded into small. I know places. you saw the data. Versus... I
1: mean, cities with universities in them are higher too as well because students tend to be students. spreaders more so than the but, average person.
0: But in
2: general, Shane's argument is going to hold that the, if the models don't consider these network effects that yeah. people differ dramatically in the rate at at which they they pass this thing along if they don't consider that then they're going to overestimate what it takes to bring things down and so but you're 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 taking out you're randomly taking out some of these spreaders and it and it and it has a a bigger effect than we would anticipate if everything yeah
1: let me ask another question so i i also dug into the data a little bit it turns out i looked at the state by state data for r Okay. And R is only greater than one now in five states. So let me ask another question. Should we be allocating more resources to those five states? And... In other words, if the other one's states are already going to die, assuming everything stays stable, why don't we maximize the effectiveness by allocating more vaccines to states with higher I, I,
2: I agree, Eric, because we've optimized the vaccine delivery right now. Yeah.
4: Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> right, right. Ask, it's such a machine. Let's take it to the next level.
1: I'm allowed to ask a conceptual <laughs> question for maximizing the yeah. effectiveness.
2: A hundred percent. That's yeah. what I would be, do. Sure. Yeah, you must you must be right, but, but, but we're so far off the of efficient frontier, we're not even remotely looking at what another what additional lever. I mean it's like let's get it simpler, simpler, simpler.
4: Yeah. But let me ask you guys a question. Like the, 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 the decreases we're seeing in cases and deaths right now, are you, uh, is that going to – I mean over the last couple of weeks, it's like down by like 40 percent or something like that. So you, you're sort of percent. Yeah, that, like, uh, that that's going to – do you expect that to flatten out? And, you know, the decrease to kind of like, so you're saying that it's just because of the holiday wave, we're kind of working our way through. I mean, why, why would that flatten out?
0: I think, I mean, I, it's complicated. I have no... You know, I can I can be quite honest that I don't really know. We've seen the flatten out in each two of the times before. it's
4: going to have to flatten out if we're still concerned that we're going to have being a COVID world by
0: but what, why did it Why did it grow twice? Now, in the first two waves, I think were just really the same wave, just same first wave, just in different spots. Yeah. So, and part of that in the United States is hard to kind of grasp. We had the Northeast phase. Then we kind of had the South and the mi- and the Midwest phases. They kind of, kind of were merged together. This last phase... <laughs> It seemed all over the world it happened. I mean, we, everywhere there was a big December, January run up, and it's all kind of crashing more or less, not exactly the same rate, but almost the same way across the world. So it's not exactly the same. I mean, I, I've been tracking Israel's rates. They, The last two weeks, two weeks, they've gone down by 67%. We've gone down 41 and by about... In three weeks, and also the big difference is that it's all the new cases are young people now, we're just overwhelmingly young people for which none are vaccinated. Just
1: to let you know, in order of magnitude, I'm staring right now at the CDC data right now, yeah, and it's way down. However, let's be clear the number it's at now is higher than the peak of either of the first two waves. So I just want to make sure we're all normed about what low this is, is this is i happen
2: to see i happened to see fauci on a sunday morning program this weekend and this was his big point he's like yeah big drop steep decline but we're at a very high level still no no and i mean again
4: that. if it flattened out we would be you know bad mm-hmm. uh, we I, I agree we would still be in a bad covid situation but what so here let me why let is me, it going to flatten out let, let me let as me opposed ask, to just keep it going down
2: let me try a simple one, which is a, from our usual sports analytics conversations. Is there any chance involved with the peak having spiked the way it did? Did the chance play a role at all?
0: Where and when it did, you mean? The timing? Okay.
2: Yeah. Was there was there chance in there being a, a, a spike there? There has to be, right? I mean, these things are not this thing's not perfectly deterministic. And so um, if it, I mean, some role, we don't know how big a role, but to the extent that there was it chance involved
4: with also record. holiday season, all that. I mean, there's kind of predictable reasons why I, I mean some what it was was not some- entirely unanticipated, right?
0: Yeah, the problem was is that it was ru- it was starting to really ramp up in early November. It, it, you can't. There's nothing in the data that suggests that holidays created anything. Wow. I, I, in some level, the argument would be is that we had this gigantic summer lull, <laughs> and that it takes time for it to percolate if you will yeah. spread around and then it pops I mean, that's the. i mean we all know that the, the trajectory of an exponential curve it looks linear and slow in the beginning and then it just bam explodes and so I, that would be my guess is that the end of the summer brought incru- brought it really down and then it started to grow as we went back inside and it just took a while before it popped maybe there was a little bit of a push in holiday season and to, to just kind of keep it over but, uh, but I, and, I and now it's I wearing guess. itself out under that model, if, if 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 the reason is
4: that there's a real severe seasonality mm-hmm. to, uh, to the COVID virus, again, wouldn't that argue for you know that plus us vaccinating people, it's not
1: oh, going to go back up.
0: I'm I'm with you. I'm betting it. I'm yeah, betting yeah. these. I'm betting it. We're never going to see numbers again like we ever right.
1: saw. I don't think we're ever. Well, let me separate the two arguments. I agree that um I don't think we'll see numbers like we did before. However. I'm not so sure we'll we'll see it as a ever-decreasing curve at this point. For example, you could imagine if other behaviors or laws, local laws changed. You could imagine if the new vira, uh, variant, which is more contagious, were to become the dominant variant. Yeah. So I put this away, I wouldn't take a bet right now that we will see a monotonically decreasing curve. I think there will be I – I don't mean <laughs> just be, be a be. random fluctuation yeah. either. I'm saying yeah. if you take a long enough period of time I have no belief that, for example, necessarily three months from now – and I have to pick a short time frame because if I pick a year from now, I do believe the vaccine will will kill this off. But I'm going to pick a time um, six weeks from now. I don't know what the probability yeah. is that there's less than the sixty or 70,000 cases a day than there yeah, are now. I mean,
2: that, let's not forget that it was only just a week or two ago that all the conversation was on the new variants and how much correct they are. And this was a recent
1: so, so, time.
4: So, Eric, you wouldn't even take a straight up bet that uh, three months from now it's lower than it is today.
1: Sixty thousand is it's lower than say, that now. I would say three months from now, there's probably a good chance because that's why I, I changed my time frame to six weeks from now because I think the COVID vaccine. In three months from now, if they give away, if they give out, let's say one and a half to two million in three months from now, that's you know that's 90 days at two million vaccinations. at uh, is it at two million a, a week or a day? A day? A week? A week?
0: Two no, million. no. They're up to. They're going to be up to to two million a day. Hopefully, pretty soon.
1: Is it per day or per week? I'm just sorry. I'm, I'm per, just per day. Oh. History per day oh yeah <laughs> so that means in 90 days if they give away 2 million a day that's 180 million doses that's 90 million people that's 25 percent to 30 percent of the u.s population now that's right that's gotten it so i know if i that's what i said if i go too far out in time then yes i agree it's way down but i'm just saying six weeks out i'm not that convinced i,
2: I take eric's argument to be yeah yeah give me any period of time it's probably going to be down but there may be a ramp up somewhere along those ways and and let me just point there's we, we've mentioned before there is a gentleman by the name of Yu Yang Gu who has a nice track record. No one has a great track record forecasting this thing, but he has a relatively impressive track record, great website. And it's, it's COVID-19-projections.com, COVID-19-projections.com. And he does, if you look at the infection, the the infections model, a lot of his graphs are about the immunization, but the infections shows a spike from say low March, late March to you know, mid May. And that has to be the variants kicking in. Yep. Now, it's not enough of a spike to overcome all the vaccines that are coming in. So you still see this decline. But there's role for a little bit of, of a trend against us as these other. And as, you, as, as I think it was Eric that said, we don't know how people are going to respond. I mean, what if people really get reckless? We, the things that have screwed up the models over the last year. If we've learned anything, it's been that human behavior complicate these models. And all of our epidemiological models haven't been good from a behavioral perspective, and it's led us to get things wrong again and again.
1: But let's, 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 let's also let's, add, Kate, okay, you talked early on when we were talking about COVID months and months ago about the form of uncertainty. So let me just add one wrinkle into this. Okay, let me add two wrinkles. One is we don't know for certain how effective the vaccine is against some of the new variants. And number two, we don't know for certain how long the vaccine vaccine immunization lasts for. And so imagine I told you that it lasts for 4 or 5 months and then you need a booster. Well, when are those people in January going to get a booster? Are they getting a booster before I get a first shot? Like so when is that happening? And so all of a sudden now you have to at least put on certainty. Your your mean estimate may be right, but you have to allow yeah. for the possibility that the people the early people that got vaccinated, they may be able to get it now. You don't know that. This, that's
2: a very fair point and it's one of the themes on this show for all these years and it's again something we should have learned over the last year that uncertainty is reliably higher than we expect it to be and again and again we have to learn that lesson unfortunately you know alex Tabarak talked about and i may not be pronouncing alex last name i should know how to pronounce that marginal he's a marginal Re- revolution with uh, tyler cowan alex has a blog post recently on uh, return to well, – no, no, I think this is this is Yang Gu. Return to normalcy. Instead of return to – not to herd immunity, let's just get to normalcy. So I'm curious what you guys think about this. Like We're throwing these dates around. We're speculating. When do you feel like you're when – when life will feel more normal in the cities, when people – would be enough people – with with immunity, that there are people in restaurants, um, that schools are open. This thing will still be in the community, but we will be far enough along that life will be more normal. when do we think that's going to
0: happen? Well, you know, that's funny. A lot of that depends on on, uh, people's reactions. And I think it's going to be actually quite geographic, which is uh, and quite geographically diverse. So I'm going to tell two quick anecdotes, if you don't mind. So one, um, I I saw my, my daughter yesterday and she was with a friend and he claims that Miami is back to normal. Miami. And I haven't been to Miami, but he was, he, he has fa- family lived there. He's been there several times. He's had corona himself. And he said, it's as if there's no corona. There's, there's clubs, there's restaurants. Um, it is whatever's, um, is just happening. Now I said, what about what, what's going on with, with people who are concerned about getting sick and et cetera? He says, well, a lot of the old people have gotten vaccinated, but anyone older just doesn't go out. That's essentially what he described it. Is it accurate? Uh, it sounds reasonable. I've heard stories that, to confirm that. The other is anecdotal. Oh,
2: oh, oh, this just, this- just confirms our all of us have the opinion that Miami is essentially like one big college campus. But also, <laughs> I, I is, it feels
1: I big like big it. Uh, uh, but, but I wouldn't. I, mean, I wouldn't call that back to normal. I would call it back to normal for a segment of the population. You just that's
0: true. that's true. That's true. That's
1: unfair. Old well, people aren't going. Well, in. No, but they
0: are starting to get vaccinated. So my so my oh, in laws, my in laws have been vaccinated, and, and they are they are they've made plans to go eat, eat dinner outside in a restaurant. They haven't done that in a year. But my, from a personal perspective, as I announced last week that I've been vaccinated. I'm, I'm and my wife and I, we did something we haven't done in, in, in just about a year, and I did something personally I hadn't done. We went to the movies
2: remarkable
0: and the movies were it was fun i mean it was it was kind of sad cuz the theater was mostly empty <laughs> You are the only people there uh, there were plenty of people younger than us there but and the 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 theater sat 100 and there were probably 20 people in it um and so that was the second the other thing i did was i went it's to the whole, gym Adi, Adi, what, yeah. what movie did you see? what did you choose to see first? oh shit <laughs> whatever <laughs> so many the, almost uh, it's a giant multiplex almost nothing was was they only had five we're screens not, no i think it was the little things i think we saw the little things a Denzel Washington, um, and it, the kind of movie I would not enjoy at home. It's kind of uh, you know a thriller, uh, suspense. Great in the in the main on the big screen in the theater with comfortable okay. reclining, you know whatever. And that that felt to me like an enormous step for for Lisa and I. We hadn't oh, I, actually I, I gone did, out right, in a year, that would be great. and it was transformative. And, and I have to tell you how uplifting. The other thing I did was I went to the gym. What surprised me about the gym, uh, not that I that I cannot lift anything the more and I've and I've become a big softy and it's a disaster. That was a complete expectation what surprised me was how many people were in the gym
2: oh yeah right
0: yeah was- i think it really depends on what you mean by normalcy right mm-hmm. i mean yeah you
4: know, i mean <laughs> that, I, I mean i can tell you i can report i, I walk around center I walk around center, city, I walk around center city yesterday um all weekend um there's people coming out of bars oh bars are
0: open bars i didn't know that really real restaurants indoor
4: that. dining and some indoor dining is basically capacity indoor dining i could certainly observe Gee. anecdotally wow um so, yeah, I mean, it, things are – I mean, depending on what you mean by – I mean, you, there's no real kind of strict line. But, yeah, movie theaters are open in Center City. I did know that. Are open in Center City. Okay,
2: so all this is happening sooner than it probably ought to be happening. So well, again, ought to
4: be by what metric, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, again, if your objective function is completely towards minimizing more COVID, mm-hmm. new COVID, yeah. yeah, definitely. But I think I you thought, know, I thought we're question. officially in the societal – You know, objective, you know, I mean, at least implicitly, we are now, you know, our objective function includes trying to cut down on COVID, but also businesses that have been barely staying alive through all this are like, you know, I mean,
2: I I hear you. But for up to this point, we've been saying, look, let's be Let's be prudent. Let's order the risk correctly, and let's let's not restrict activities that we think are pretty low risk, like anything outdoors. Mm -hmm. And let's let's limit our restrictions to those things that are high risk, like eating eating inside
4: and yeah. Well, but but I mean, again, given the weather, I mean, Miami, you know, if uh, it is outdoors, yeah. Well, right, right. I mean, around here, sure. I mean, I can can limit yourself to outdoor
1: activities in Philadelphia in February. Mm -hmm. I can safely say for myself, I'm hoping. By June, um, I'm trying to be more realistic for me yeah. by the start of the semester in the fall. Oh, gosh. OK, Jeez.
2: OK, well, that's, that's that's at least it's a window there. And and that that recognizes the uncertainty. So, Eric, you're being true to your point earlier about the
4: uncertainty. I'll make a prediction. OK, here's here's one. I'm going to go out on a limb. I'll be at a Phillies baseball game uh, by the all star break. Oh, yeah, I think that's true.
0: I'll well, I'll make it. it. I mean, I think Maybe it's even by it. Memorial Day. I think that things will be fairly normal in Philadelphia by Memorial Day. You think
1: I'm going to have the vaccine by Memorial Day, Adi? uh, That would be my over-under for you
0: in Memorial
4: Uh, Day. But this is something I mean I I would be making – I'm not necessarily saying I will be sitting vaccinated at a Phillies game at Memorial Day. I just think the the rates uh, will be uh, low uh, enough that I'll feel
0: comfortable going.
2: it's It's outside.
0: Yep. I also think the J and J vaccine is going to get approved on uh, on Friday, and uh, they're going to ramp up. And the real question for you is going to be: What do I choose, J and J, or do I wait for the mRNA? I've already told you what my answer. Yeah, I know. You, we talked. You would do the J and J. You get yes, it right. Away. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: absolutely. That's strong recommendation. If you have a chance between one shot now, J and J, or wait three weeks four weeks for a two shot from Pfizer Moderna go with the one shot for so sure. our, our buddy Leonard talked about this in one of his pieces a couple weeks ago and it has to be spot on all right guys that has been our first quarter that has been our coronavirus discussion for this week we still have three quarters you're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on business radio
2: welcome back welcome back to Wharton Moneyball rolling into the second quarter now open used to be open lines it's open topics now especially my gosh fellas especially on the other side of football we're doing our usual show sirs xm two hours you guys can reach out and join us in a way between shows hit us up on twitter at WMoneyball. is our handle there at WMoneyball. you can also drop us an email it's our mailbag and we do get emails on occasion always delighted to hear from you guys the email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu again moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu always glad to hear from you we take you up on occasion we're going to debate some questions that were raised in the mailbag we're going to debate those questions in q3 judging the greatest players of all time all right guys i know um we've had a little bit you know, the Australian Open wrapped up. Eric's always interested in tennis. But this is like getting to be of general interest. Some interesting champions down there. Some storylines developing. Eric, what do you see coming out of the Australian Open?
1: Well, before I get to the men's side, I do want to talk about the women's side. And there's a specific yeah. reason. So Naomi Osaka won. Uh, she won in dominating fashion. Uh, she won her fourth major. The part that I find interesting is kind of her bimodality, which is, I understand it's just four times, but she's once she's reached the quarterfinal, of a major she's never been beaten oh my no kidding so it's interesting you could call i mean if you want to call this hot and cold when she's on she's the best i understand it's just four tournaments but i mean she's never lost in the quarterfinals semis or finals of okay, a major when okay. she's reached conditional on reaching the quarterfinals okay. of a so major. A couple-
2: a couple of things. That's shocking, right? Because the competition gets tougher. But how often has she not even made the corners? Like since we first became aware of her, like since oh, her first. Uh, huh. Okay. Since her first Grand Slam championship, how many times has she, n- I guess we can kind of If I had
1: it. to guess, I would say she's probably played uh, the, My first guess. I don't know the answer. My first guess was going to be 16 majors, but it could be 14, yeah, four, some somewhere less. in the 14 to 18 yeah. range. And yeah. so there's probably 10 to 12. She hasn't even made the quarterfinals and the okay, four so. that she's made the quarterfinals She's won them all.
4: Oh, is she Is she like an unusually, I guess maybe a follow up to Kai kind of Kade. Is she an unusually streaky player? Like, if you actually kind of, you know, which you, this would maybe be the result, like, if she was a very streaky player, or abnormally streaky, this would be kind of well, the type of result. That's one thing you, you
1: could observe. argue. The other you could argue, the other argument, of course, would be it's surface dependent. So the four majors she's won, she's won the U.S. Open twice and the Australian twice, which are both hard courts. Now, of course, they're, they're a little bit different hard courts, but they're both hard courts. She's never won. On the French, and she's never won the Wimbledon, matter of fact, we know, given what I just said, she's never even reached the quarterfinals of those two. Because if she had, she would have won them based on that statistic.
2: Eric, talk, t- talk about surfaces there because the hard courts, presumably, speed wise, sit between grass and clay. And so, would it be, obviously, Nadal is like the, the canonical example of someone who's a court si- type specialist. Would it be a little surprising to have someone who's real good with hard courts and neither dominant on either side, the faster grass or the slower clay? Well...
1: Yes, I would say it's likely. Plus, wait, if you asked me which major, let me frame it a different way. If you asked me which major would I predict she would win next, Wimbledon or the French, which she has not won, I would have to say Wimbledon. Right. right. You'd have Mm -hmm. to say Wimbledon over the French just because of the speed of the surface. But, of course, you could argue she likes the hard courts because of the regularity of the bounces and everything else like that. She plays from the back of the court, which, you know, serve and volley tends to work very well on grass where the ball doesn't come up. Right, right. And so... But yes, if you had if I had to pick now, I would pick Wimbledon over the French and probably by a fairly large margin.
2: Okay, so let me give you one other possible explanation. I don't know the pattern of her tournament wins so far, but you might. Shane was asking about streakiness. What about um, regime shifts? We, she went into funk, it seems like, after that she first did. championship over Serena. That was so controversial and it was such a mess. And she went into this kind of funk and maybe a lot of her not even making the quarter entrance were in the middle of that funk. And since then, I mean, to what extent is it a kind of a mm-hmm. since then she's been playing Stronger Story?
1: Yeah. Look, it, it, it's absolutely possible. Um, and in fact, here's where I know, actually, that the numbers are actually, different. I think she's won. So now I know, actually, I think she's won four out of the last eight majors. I may be wrong. OK, but All I right. think she oh. may. So maybe That's, that sounds it's good. Just <laughs> half the majors, she hasn't played well. The other half she's played well and one um, look uh, if she wants to, in my view, she can easily become a double-digit major winner. I'm not going to say 15, 20, because that's just un- unreasonable. I mean, she get, I mean, I'm not saying she's not, but I'm just saying she's got four. Can she win six more? Yeah. How, old, he, is how old is she? How old is she? 23.
2: How many mm-hmm. double-digit major winners are there in women's tennis? Well,
1: let's see if, how many I can name. So, um, obviously, Margaret Court is up top. And then you have Serena. Then you have Stephie Steffi Graf. Groff. You have Martina and Chris, who both have 18. Um, I don't know if Monica Sellis or any of those other people are near or above 10. So I know there's at least five or six, at least five, but that yeah, would princess, put her, okay. there's probably a big gap between Martina and Chrissy and the next person down below that. I mean, Venus has seven. I don't know if it goes straight from seven to 18, but it wouldn't shock me. How many if did only... Jennifer Capriati have? No, no, she had like three or four. Okay. No, 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 nowhere near, nowhere near any of those numbers. So yeah, you know, uh, Maria Sharapova mm-hmm. won all four majors, but she has only five. She won mm-hmm. three of them once and one of them twice. So getting to double digits is, is tough. That's a lot of majors.
2: Eric, one last question about Osaka and women's tennis. Is it more common for the top players in women tournaments to be knocked out early? It, it feels like we're so spoiled on the big three and the men's side that it's just shocking to us that the number one player wouldn't make the quarters, but perhaps it's a much more common event in, in women's.
0: Yeah, well, so it I, is. It is three uh, three three games. <laughs> three sets, not not five. Oh, well yeah, you're saying any individual game is higher variance. Yeah, sure. Apparently. No. Yeah.
1: So for, the answer is definitely true. And as a matter of fact, here's what I do know. I remember so, there was some statistic like of the last 20 men's majors i think literally the big three have won maybe 19 out of 20 of them and for the women it was like there were 17 different winners so like osaka <laughs> oh might be God. one of the few to actually have won multiple majors matter of fact, the only other person who matter of fact i can't even think about another woman simona halep's number one in the world she's won one major ash barty is sorry simona's two in the world ash barty's number one in the world she's won one major I'm not sure besides Osaka in the last four, five, six years that there's anyone that's won more than one besides her. That's
2: amazing. That's amazing. Well, it's been fun. It's been fun to watch her, especially been fun to get her to see her come out.
1: And she was down. Remember, in the quarterfinals, she was down against another two-time major champion, Gabrina Mugurusa. She was down 5-3 in the third and two match points.
2: Right. That's good. That's that's some, that's a some moxie, Eric. That's a moxie. Oh, that's, All right. Take take us over to the other side. Talk to talk to us about
1: uh, Djokovic. Well, I mean, the reality is, is that, um, you know, as Daniel Medvedev said and by the way, just to tell you, that's who uh, Djokovic played in the finals. He's ranked number four in the world. Djokovic beat him seven, five, six, two, six, two total under two hours. Oh as my. Medvedev said at the end of the match, um, there's the big three and then there's the rest of us. Oh, god! And he said it's not even close. And Hold on. It, Hasn't
2: Medvedev beat him the last few he
1: times? He did. Explaining? Matter of fact, he played him at the ATP finals in London last year and absolutely destroyed him. But let's oh. see you do it in best of five. And let's see you do it when, you know, remember, this is the reason I've always said Djokovic does better at the Australian, not just because he likes the faster courts. He has five months to prepare. He has, you give Djokovic, who's a training freak, and I say this positively, a chance to prepare. You know, (laughs) Wimbledon comes immediately after the French, then the U.S. Open comes quickly, but you give Djokovic five months of only training for the Australian? And that's what's going to happen. And, no, the, the men's side is going to be – I don't see any reason why, you know, the French is next. Who, no one would bet against Nadal and the French. Um, you then have Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. I mean, I'm now I'm starting to think no one's going to break through this year either. I'm going – I'm going matter of fact, we can do our over-under segment. Number of majors won by men outside the big three this year. I will go under 0.5 now. Hmm.
2: Wow. No
1: kidding. I just don't – yeah, I just don't see it. I mean, I don't think Federer is going to win one. But I mean, Djokovic is thirty-three, Nadal's thirty-four. I I think at least two, three more years. They're not, maybe not going to win them all. But of the next twelve, I'll say the following: of the next, Federer will be done. I'd say of the next twelve, I would say Nadal and uh, Djokovic win at least nine. Jeez. Okay.
2: Well, and you're you're putting you're putting making a strong bet on zero for the remaining three this year,
4: um, and of those nine, how do you think it breaks down between Nadal and Djokovic? I mean, obviously three for Nadal at least, right? Because the three Frenches.
1: <laughs> well, eventually he's going to lose in the French. <laughs> eventually he's going to lose. Um, sure. I would have to say say over the next three years, over the next twelve, I would give Nadal. I would put them at about equal, because I would give Nadal three Frenches. I think he'll get a Wimbledon or a U.S. Open in there, so four. I, I'd maybe give Djokovic a slight edge, five, five, five to four and a half, something like that mm-hmm. in predictions. So,
0: uh, Eric, I wanted to get your your feelings on the semifinal uh, performance of Karatsev, right? This guy played his way in. I don't think that's ever happened before, that an unranked or maybe, I mean, not a not a seeded player made it to the semifinals.
1: Uh, of the Australian. It's the happened- Australian. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was 116th in the world. No, I mean, it's it pretty remarkable. <laughs> yeah, and also, it's not like the people he beat. He beat a number of top. Matter of fact, let me just tell you, he had a harder draw than Djokovic. <laughs> now, of course, the reason Djokovic had such an easy draw is because Ox beat all those people. was yeah. <laughs> on Djokovic's side of the draw. Mm -hmm. And so he beat theme. He beat a whole bunch of players. I mean, Djokovic ended up with a really the only the only credible match, really, that Djokovic could have lost. Let's be honest, was against Medvedev, who not only had won 20 consecutive matches, but here's another amazing stat. He had won 10 straight matches against people in the top 10, 10 straight matches. Medvedev had won. That was the only difficult match that that Djokovic had an easy draw.
2: Talk to us about this qualifier tool. What will his – you said he was 121 or something? Yeah,
1: like 116 in? or something. Yeah. What
2: will his ranking be on this side of it? And then are the rankings really capturing the proper updating? What do you do? To what extent do you update your beliefs about that guy's ability after that kind of run?
1: I would say I, I don't know the answer, but it's knowable. I, if I had to guess, I would say he'll go up to somewhere like fifty or sixty in the world. Oh, mm. good job! Okay. Probably somewhere because you know the, the majors are worth. Well, by the way, just so you guys know, you've heard this thing: Masters one thousand, and then there's the the, the five hundred. That tells you the number of points. So the majors are worth two thousand. Then you go down to the Masters 1000 series, like, you know, the Cincinnati Masters, the Paris, Masters, those are worth 1000. Then there's the ATP 500s. Those are worth 500. Then there's even the 250s, which some of the big players play, but not the top three. So this guy probably got as much as winning, a, not a Masters 1000, but he probably got over 500 points. He probably got, an, that's probably the equivalent of winning a top tier event. So yeah, that's going to put him in the top 60. So,
2: Eric, the, the, you know, we're forecasters here, and so these point systems are always a little bit unsatisfying because we don't know what, to what extent they actually reflect the predictive ability. What do you do with your own updating of his, predi- of, of his ability?
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to put a wide interval, but I'll say the following. Um, he's not a top four player in the world and he's a lot better than probably 60 in the world so if i had to guess i would say what what's the actual number now Audi? 42 wow so that's a huge move okay so that okay <laughs> so but what, what i will say the following is um i would still if he were to play an infinite number of matches against top 20 players in the world i would put his winning percentage at about where you'd expect number 42 in the world to be i think that probably sounds about right oh, by the way what, is, right
2: what is what is what is that number
4: i don't know
1: what I, I how 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 often does a 20 beat a 40 Over or no, and a ten,
4: an
2: average ten or the the,
1: the collection of these guys. I I would say that ten beats forty well over eighty percent ninety percent of the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, There's a big, big difference between a top ten player and number forty. So So I think it's about right.
2: Talking about these rankings, uh, these recently you posted something about the ELO rankings, all time ELO rankings in men's tennis. This is one of the beautiful things about ELO. Of course, you can compare people across generations. And I'm shocked to see Djokovic at the top of this list. Tell us what you see here.
1: Well, I was shocked to see it, too. So these are the peak. This is the, it's not a ranking of the average or longevity. Yeah. It's who had the highest. At, if you took the maximum ELO rating someone had at their peak, what was yeah. it? Yeah. Djokovic is number one ever at the Australian Open in 2016 was his peak according to the ELO ratings. Shockingly, I, I would never have, I, I sort of would have guessed this, was Bjorn Borg. People All right. I love Bjorn it. Bjorn Borg won, <laughs> I think the number is, it's either six straight Wimbledons and five straight French's or vice versa. But basically, he couldn't be beat. Okay. Like he couldn't, like McEnroe finally beat him after losing, and by the way, McEnroe's third on the list. But Fantastic. he couldn't be beat, Borg, for years. I mean, he was the dominant player. And then you have Nadal and Federer, who are basically equivalent They're right next to each other 4 and 5 in the list. I mean, the part that shocked me was how low Pete Sampras is on the
4: Yeah, list. that was I mean, speaking of people who at least in my mind for he
1: was on a streak like crazy for a while and he's below Andy Murray? Well, this is the problem though. This is this yeah. is why. So, Andy Murray played his career against the big 3 who did Sampras beat really? So he beat Agassi. Agassiz below him, that by the way. That was pretty classic. But he match also played, right you know, there. who was Sampras playing? He was playing. <laughs> played in a week time. That's you know, the way you look at thing. it. He was yeah. playing at a week time. He played wonderful players. Mats Volander, Stefan Edberg, Boris Becker, you know, but these are guys that, you know, these, most people consider these people of the all time. Let's take our Hall of Fame analogy. These are third tier ha- greats. They're great, but they're not all all time greats.
2: So Eric, you're talking about, you said it's a problem. It's not a problem for the system. It's a problem for his reputation, essentially. And I'm curious about, I mean, it's amazing, really. It's neat to be able to compare Rod Laver to to Djokovic. I and mean, it's just remarkable to be able to do that across time what is the problem with this system? I mean, is it actually sound? Um, and is tennis kind of one of the unique places where you can do this because it's been relatively stable? So how do you think about it as a system for making this? So
1: companies? I'll say what I know, but then Adi, who knows infinitely more than me about ELO models, I'll just say a few <laughs> things. The one thing that, this takes me back to my educational testing service days where you're trying to compare people's, like, what's? how do I compare someone that got a 780 on a physics test to a 750 on a Spanish test? You need what's called an overlapping design. And And so in the ETS way, it's all those people also took the SAT. So you can you can relate them to a common source of information. So here, of course, Rod Laver never played Novak Djokovic, but Rod Laver may have played somebody who played Guillermo Vilas, and then Vilas played Connors, and then Connors played McEnroe, and McEnroe may have played someone else early on. So this is how the ELO rating works. And tennis, because of the length of people's careers you and the number of matches they play, I think I probably have a fair... Fairly reasonable amount of confidence that these ELO ratings are pretty reflective you have all the things which is dense data overlapping design data um the, you know the tennis court hasn't gotten bigger the size right of the i mean that, that's court i think the big the thing
4: that i think that's the now, big thing that prevents have comparisons and others changed
1: and so now but to argue against this you'd have to argue an interaction effect that right. the better players would have performed even better with better rackets in other words it was an equalizer it compressed the system give pete sampras a racket from today and nobody would have ever returned any of his serves, and then he would have been the best player ever, and he would have won thirty majors. You can make that argument, but you'd have to make an argument like that, like an interaction effect. But Adi, what are your thoughts on this? Well,
0: it, you also have to make you also have to make a, like a you have a, an idea that there's a parameter, like a power parameter. That more is just better, and 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 that's kind of similar to the interaction argument that things can just sort of start turning on itself. So if you imagine if the game tennis can be very power oriented, and then people debate they they react to that power oriented by having a a more finesse style or a speed style, and after a while everyone sort of becomes speedy and finesse. And someone new comes in and hey say well, you guys forgot about power, and and then and then it becomes a uh, and then they're back to power. So when things circulate like that, the overlapping design doesn't really tr- have a um. A trajectory—it's fantastic for time. Anything that has a time component it works perfectly. Obviously, everyone recognizes. But in and in, in, in tennis, it's probably better than it would be in say football or baseball. Right. Okay. So, well, Adi,
2: you're, you're saying, real quick, let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying it—it's designed to be unidimensional. So it's a single construct underlying these guys. Mm-hmm. This goes back to chess. Obviously, this the, the yes. system was came about in order to rank chess players, and you're saying that's. May or may not be the case with tennis, but mostly it feels like it does fit tennis pretty well. Sorry, Shane. Jump in.
0: Let me let me just add one before you get to Shane. One idea is that is that the population of of players also means that. So, Sampras. Um, there wasn't on any other great player, so that kind of hurt.
1: Agassi him. would be the other person. He won eight majors. Agassi sure. would be in the same level that m- many people. think. But
0: you kind of have to have a, a population stability, and if you don't assume population stability, it won't work. Go go ahead, Shane.
2: Hold on, I don't now. I don't understand that. I thought we wanted this dynamic population with a lot of overlapping careers, which is that feels like the opposite of population stability.
0: No, no, I don't mean stability. So think about the distribution of talent. So, um, y- what you have to have a Essentially, a bell-shaped curve with the right tails. You, if all of a sudden you get a get a spike at the upper end, that's unique to a certain generation. That group is going to play each other and beat each other up.
2: Well, as long as there's overlap, I mean, so so Federer, for example, is quite a bit older than than Nadal and Djokovic, and so mm-hmm. he is kind of one of the big three that played each other a ton. But also, he started earlier, and so he connects them back to these other people
4: well yeah, this it, is, it, it's, except the fact that it's out of seat you know that they that is wow. shifted in time relative to them does him a little bit of disservice because he's not hitting like it's not like a it's not a comparison of it's, it's 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 a tabulation basically of what actually happened as opposed to some kind of like you know trying to infer what like peak federer would have done against peak Djokovic and peak you know what you know peak nadal also right so think- that I, yeah, I, I mean, it, also- I mean, it's it it, it it I mean, it, it's an inherent limitation. I don't have a, any other methodology that would do that. Yeah,
0: let me just let I me mean, add one thing. Elo is also very slow to react. It's not a quick. Uh, it doesn't adapt very fast, and that has its pros and cons. One of the cons is, and, and one of the reasons why I think Djokovic might end up on the top like that is that it doesn't make the others get worse quickly, and so he beat them all in a short period of time while they were still extraordinarily highly ranked, and it gave him a lot of credit for it right. and, and it just quickly, also just one not-
1: last thing to what Cade said. This should be scary, as you tell me, to project forward because they're saying that Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer's peak was five, six, seven years ago, and they're still beating all the other guys. That should (laughs) make them even more worried.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Eric, just in the last second, you're the only person who's going to have something to say about this, but I see that Jordan Spieth has snuck back into the top ten. He Talk about peak. Peak. he was looking really good, but he's been off for years now. Is Jordan Spieth back?
1: So Jordan Spieth is back as in competing for different tournaments now. He came in. He had 15th this week, third straight week of playing really well. Yes, I think you'll see Jordan Spieth have a lot of top tens in the next year, whether he's back to winning. I don't know, but he's getting closer. He looked good. Is
2: there a golfer out there that you're excited about right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I think Dustin Johnson is playing remarkable. I mean, he played badly yesterday and only ended up like seventh or eighth. But this guy has won, I think it's three of his last four tournaments, including the Masters, and the guy won in Saudi Arabia. The guys, I mean, every tournament he's in now, he's the favorite to win, and by a large margin right now.
2: Well, I love that you've come around on him. You were—I don't know what you were. I was so
1: down on him. You—you were the one who perennially. He had won twenty-something tournaments, but only one major. And I was like, "How can this happen? This is the ultimate choke." By the way, you want to talk about the ultimate choke job just quickly, Tony Finau. Tony Finau, even worse. Guy's got like 20, 35 top 10s and no victories in the last five years.
2: I heard some press on how gracious he was after the weekend.
1: Extraordinarily gracious.
2: And he's, he's kind of a, a beloved guy on, on, out there, and people are hoping that it comes around for him soon. Me too. All right, guys, that has been the second quarter. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us.
1: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. On Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. Rolling into the third quarter now, another open topics segment for us. We have just been talking about. Tennis we did all, we did a whole did we do a whole quarter on tennis Eric Bradle look at us serving I'm you I'm very up,
1: very excited yeah, cuz that'll be my tennis for the next uh, 3 months
2: Well it was a, it was a, a some good storylines came out of that and then you took us to this Elo thing which was a conversation of it wasn't the greatest players but it was the players at the peak in the rankings and it was a neat conversation So um I want to I want to bring a couple of mailbag questions questions in here because we were talking about brady obviously after the super bowl and one of the great all-time nfl players obviously and then we can generalize and say maybe he's one of the great team sports players and we had a couple folks who wanted challenges on this a little bit so let me just read you a couple notes one from gary feldman uh gary says on the show on the last show you were discussing athletes who have won the greatest number of championships i knew bill russell had won 11 nba titles in his 13 year career and upon looking up, discovered he was tied with Henri, Henri,
1: Henri know, Richard,
2: Henri, Henri Richard Mm -hmm. of the Montreal Canadiens for most championships won by an athlete in the North American Sports League. I'm guessing they were overlooked by the panel because none of you were around then. So I think, one, we have to plead guilty to this, but I think there's a more general question here about, you know, how do we compare Brady and seven to Bill Russell and Rocket Richard of the Canadiens? And then let me just while we're on it, because we have another related note, I won't read all of this one, but Renan Machado Machado. I'm sorry, Renan. We may be mispronouncing your name. You guys should give us some pronunciations on your names. And this question is, you know, the, how does Brady rank compared to other great athletes? It's like, well, uh, the QB only controls so much, and there's so much variance. Can you really say, you know, him to LeBron, Gretzky, and others, has Brady ever been as dominant as these other players? And so, Renan goes on to make an interesting comment here. He says, look, let's look at MVPs. Gretzky had nine MVPs. Brady has three. Rogers has just won his third MVP and plays at the same era. Manning had five and played at the same, area, same era. So it doesn't happen. He says it just doesn't happen with the greatest of all time athletes, that they win championships but not MVPs. This is basically his challenge. So I think these are interesting notes, and I thought it would, um, we would be well-served to give some thought to what these guys are saying. Shane.
4: Yeah, I mean, I have a couple comments. I mean, the first of all, as far as how one compares between different sports, you have to. I mean, first of all, I think the if if you want to talk about the what what makes Brady the greatest of all time in football, you have to kind of focus basically on wins. I mean, like that that that's the strongest argument. I mean, obviously he has passing totals that are amazing, but the place where he really stands out is wins. I mean, and yeah, he doesn't have he is like half the MVPs of Peyton Manning. But you know Peyton Manning was won a lot of MVPs and then lost in the playoffs to Tom Brady. Okay, so
2: what's what the guy? What, this, what our writer and listener is saying is look, I mean you're you're giving him undue credit if you if you're giving him yeah, wins because I, the quarterback I, well, just doesn't influence that much.
1: Yeah, I was just going to give my opinion. So um, I think the quarterback influences it a huge amount. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure I, I, I look, this isn't a fact. It's just my subjective opinion. Tom Brady's forget. Let's even say in the last 20 years, Tom Brady's not the greatest quarterback I've seen in the last 20 years. He's the greatest winner. He's yeah. the person, if I had to pick for a season to win the Super Bowl, I would pick him. Aaron Rodgers, in my view, is the best quarterback I've seen him play. If you talk about peak performance, who has played the best quarterback that I've seen in the last 20 years? To me, it's Aaron Rodgers.
4: Well, I, and I assume you mean in terms of like, you know, just how pretty his throws are, like like accuracy. I mean, I assume you I know, have I, some quantifiable outcome in mind here with what, what makes him better than Brady.
1: Yeah, so this is the way I would say. Um, I think there's a lot of throws that Aaron Rodgers makes that Tom Brady cannot make and mm-hmm. could not make even at earlier he would not in even his attempt career. to make. Yep, and would right, and, and that might be right. Wouldn't even attempt to make. I agree yep. with that. And that's a credit. I mean, you could argue that's a strength of Brady's, but he wouldn't even attempt to make it. Um, yeah, I would. James say,
4: Winston also makes a lot of throws that Brady would not
1: even attempt to make. <laughs> Yeah. He does that too. I just, I'm just, let's put it,
2: let's put it this way. If, if Rogers had played with Belichick, the same number of years that Brady played with Belichick, would he have won the same number of Super Bowls? more or less?
4: Less in my opinion, because I I think Brady actually through preparation, whatever. I mean, I, again, my outcome is wins because I think that's the way, you know, Brady is what makes Brady the course greatest quarterback of all time is he doesn't make mistakes. he, and he manages a game and so, and manages a season and manages the rest of his team like such that you know basically he okay, has a Shane, higher probability of winning.
2: Shane, I I I understand your argument and I believe that you believe that argument. Mm-hmm. I also suspect that you believe that quarterbacks are overcredited with wins and overcredited with losses. So, can you help me understand the line between those two things? Because I think you hold both these beliefs, and I think yeah. that's okay. I think that's reasonable. But how can we understand?
4: Well, I, I mean, I put mean, these you know, well, right. So, I mean, there, there. I don't actually think, in my mind, I'm very consistent. I, I don't think there's a contradiction here because, on average, quarterbacks are over credited for wins, but I think exceptional cro- quarterbacks if anything are undercredited for wow wins. okay that's nice
2: so you you're, you're t- asking us to move away from averages and look yeah. at some non yeah no i mean I, and, and i
4: do at- think you know you I, I be you know and in fact if you kind of do not have an exceptional quarterback you are going to either figure out how to win a different way or not win at all, right? So I think you, – you, but with exceptional quarterbacks, I think, you know, you look at what Mahomes has even done. You know, Brady's not alone in this. You know, what Mahomes has done the last couple of years. And I think, if anything, he is undervalued his contribution to Kansas City's success, if anything, is undervalued, even though, I mean – I I think this is a neat, I think hyped, it's a
2: neat but... – I, I love the, the framework you've offered, yeah. and I can even buy the framework. Now, how could you operationalize the framework? How do you know when – other than just asking Shane Jensen's opinion, how do you know when that's happening?
4: Well, I mean one thing you can do is you can take the – like if you want to kind of – could if you I, ideally would like to measure well how much a quarterback – leads to a team winning what you'd like to do is take him off the team where he's had all this success put him what on a new win? team that doesn't win as much and see what happens you believe in sample size one no but i mean <laughs> he did do you know if you were to consider that i mean that I know, is the beautiful. kind of you know i mean this is the kind of thing when always we talk about you know, know. the truly most valuable player it but, but, you know but, but our, Shane, our, but, our conceptualization is like this is a person when placed on into a situation I agree. would. To agreed. The agreed.
2: I it's beautiful rhetoric. It I mean, is a sample be, size all, of one. All but... time, all time great rhetoric, but let's go with Mahomes. Yeah. I mean, how do we know? I basically agree with you. He probably mm-hmm. doesn't get enough credit for the performance of that team, but how can we operationalize that? How can we, how can we measure it objectively?
4: Yeah, it, it's very difficult. I mean, I guess, you know, if we got to the point where we could kind of get like some kind of wins above replacement for football, we could actually really believe in where we've done such a great job. We have such great data and have done such a great modeling that we can kind of isolate kind of the partial effect of each player on a team. That would be the way
1: to get to but it. Here's, here's the problem with football. Here's the problem with football. So you even brought it up, Shane, that. Brady doesn't make a lot of throws that other guys might try to make cuz he knows they're high risk, they won't lead to winning necessarily. So, what you can't here's what you can't do, but you could imagine someone trying to do with motion tracking data. Let's imagine the Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning in his prime made the same throws as Brady. Well, you can't say that. But let's yeah. say you did say that. <laughs> how would Aaron Rodgers or Peyton Manning have done given their accuracy, their velocity on the ball? How would they have done if they had made the same throws? But they wouldn't have made the same throws. Let's let's not
2: throw the baby out with the bathwater because you're pointing to one of the great benefits of where we are in football statistics and and sports statistics, statistics more general, that we understand what's going on in the field at any given moment in much right. finer detail than we've ever understood before. So to some extent, you can say, okay, in this situation, a guy performed like this, and we've seen other guys in that situation. And we All can, I want
1: to do then yeah. is I want to model the choice process also then. I want to model... Exactly. I want to model... Rogers would have gone deep here. Brady decided to do the eight-yard check down. Peyton Manning would have done this. I want to model that choice process also.
4: Yeah, Good. this is so, what I think. It's great. It, what, what's been done in basketball... Like, we're kind of there in basketball. Some of the most advanced kind of like. Expected point added kind of models now take like almost in a continuous time way where where everybody is on the court the person who's got the ball modeling kind of like did they make the should they have shot here should they have passed you know kind of modeling their decision at like you know the yep. second by second level and kind of like saying like how far from optimal. Was their decision making, and that's it. it it's a m- much more complex thing to do that in football with even more moving this players But I that love, would be the way, way of getting at what I'm trying to kind of real, real quick, say about add, greatness.
2: I agree. I just want to add one element to this, and it's not just the decision making. It's how a player's presence can change what's mm-hmm. going on in the field. So, yeah. you you take the top defensive back you have, and you isolate him on the number one wideout of the other side, and then. The rest of the DBs have an easier job, and so he actually changes the situations that those guys face. And we've got to figure out ways to give guys credit for that, or vice versa. If you have a weak defensive back and you got to give him coverage yeah. or help, then he changes in a in a negative way the situation that, that the rest of his DBs.
4: And and I think it, you know it's it's an incredibly complex endeavor in football, maybe the most complex of all the sports, kind of out there because there's so many moving parts and so many interaction effects, etc. cetera. Right. And that's what also makes it, I think, you know, kind of coming back to the other, you know, uh, listeners kind of email about comparing between sports now, then you've got right. this <laughs> level of complexity where, you know, you have to kind of try and norm what Bill Russell did, what Wayne Gretzky did, what, you know, Tom Brady's has done, like by kind of how easy quote unquote, it is to win and be dominant. In and it was very different sport.
1: back in the 50s and 60s right. in the NBA. No, I no, no I that's give- right. I Yeah, I don't think you can compare directly. You know, Brady's got seven, but Russell's got 11. You know, how about you know, there are a bunch of Yankees with 10, Yogi Berra. I mean, but yeah, but you went straight to the World Series. There wasn't the same depth of, yeah. of strength back then. You so know, one,
4: what, one, one angle, one direction that kind of gets to trying to norm it is like you kind of compare like, what, well, what does the next best player? Like if you're looking at like championships, right. what is the next best player in that oh, sport? Have? Shane, what is the next Shane, best player in that Shane's era?
2: You could do this. I'm just going to I'm just going to offer maybe this methodology. Oh, look at that. Tom Brady is. Well, like, no, no. I mean, obviously, uh, yes.
4: No, I mean, right. Uh, uh, casual listeners will know oh, that man. I have I picked this particular direction to make well, Tom Brady. We, well, I mean, you know, I know I, we
1: want to switch to the NBA. Let me say one thing, yeah. something recently. You even brought this up, Shane, about what we know about motion in the NBA mm-hmm. One of my favorite moments in the NBA happened recently, but not for the reason you think. So the Lakers lost a game. Let's say it was to Utah, the Clippers. I don't remember who it was. But LeBron James made a steal. At, oh, it's against the um, Clippers. LeBron James made a steal with five seconds left. The Clippers were up two. LeBron, the Clippers inbound the ball. LeBron James makes the steal. In there, dribbles up the court, throws it to Alex Caruso to take the game-winning shot. Alex Caruso misses it. They ask LeBron afterwards if he regrets it. And his answer was... Yeah, I regret it. He should have shot a three instead of a two. Doesn't the guy know about analytics? Why did he take a two to tie the game? He should have been one step further away from the basket and taken a three to win the game. And this is LeBron James. They weren't asking him, do you want the shot? Should you have given it to this player that player? He goes, Caruso should have taken a three. This, to me, showed a very sophisticated level of understanding on his part. He wasn't trying to say, I'm a better shooter. this Because he realizes, yeah, maybe I'm a 2% shooter, better shooter than that guy. But first of all, LeBron was double teamed. He was talking about the guy should have taken a three to win the game as opposed to two to tie the game.
2: Man, Shane Battier needs to take a bow because Battier talks about introducing LeBron to th- this kind of thinking when they were together on the Heat. And that's just remarkable. And and also, Eric, I mean, of all the things this guy's got to be thinking about, and of all all the, the the all that he's mastered on the basketball court, he's just adding this extra element. Super impressive.
4: No, and I mean, I think it's impressive too. And I think it'll. I mean, honestly, I think it, it'll help to his longevity. I mean, I think you know, LeBron, even LeBron, who's like obviously this an incredible athlete, his skills over time are are going to diminish, and he will have, I think, a little bit of additional longevity because he's, you know, like if if he's getting kind of smarter in the game as he gets older and his physical skills diminish. I mean, I think this is how, you know, somebody like Tom Brady, but like a lot of other athletes kind of that have had this sort of Yarmou Yager and hockey. I mean, there's a lot of kind of situations where these these players have kind of gotten, you know, like as they've aged, you know, had undue success <laughs> or, or on a, so, and anticipate success. They've gotten kind of smarter in other aspects of the game. Maybe Joker, you talked earlier in the show about Djokovic and sort of like his uh, part of his longevity is his training regime and, you know, his preparation. And I think I that's the, kind of where a lot of these if,
1: grades kind of stand out. If we want to go back to peak performance, not that he played so fantastic but if you had told me as a Buccaneers fan that the Bucs would go from seven and nine to winning the Super Bowl and along the way they would beat the Saints the Packers and the Chiefs yeah you'd have to say and in his first season with the team it's one of the greatest accomplishments for a quarterback in football that part I have to agree with now we can debate whether another quarterback could have made better throws than he did but let me just say yeah I mean they beat Three of the top five teams in football, including the potentially unbeatable Chiefs, and routed them. Yeah. So, I well, mean- one,
2: one of the subtleties in this conversation that I really want to, I want to draw some attention to, it's, it's, it's regardless of how much of a team's performance a quarterback controls – we we still tend to overweight the physical talents, the, the quote, arm talent. Mm-hmm. And Shane is pointing to lots of non-arm talent issues when he's talking about Brady being so great, and we've yet to figure out how to quantify Yeah, I mean, I think is, this is, thing is thing what
4: makes quarterbacking specifically. But notice kind the of difference. We could de- discuss this because it's such like this mixture of of, of, of physical talent, anticipation I know but Shane notice the difference between the
1: 43 year old Tom Brady and the 41 year old Drew Brees at the end the reason we talked about that Brees couldn't win the big game anymore is because everyone knew he couldn't push the ball down the field what Brady surprised everybody was he could still push the ball down the field no could he throw as well as the 28 year old Tom Brady of course not but could he get the ball outside the hash marks could he get the the 30 year old the 30 uh, yard in route the guy sliding down the middle to Gronk he can still throw that ball enough to keep defenses honest. And I was surprised. I thought, given what I had seen from Belichick, and maybe it's Belichick's fault, what I saw in that last season in New England, I thought his arm was dead.
2: Okay, so quick, guys, let's do just a little bit of NHL. And before we do it, I just want to honor the fact that we have Rocket Richard on our show for the first time in seven years. I'm not sure he's ever made an appearance before. I have limited history here, but Shane, you went to school in Montreal. I hope you can fill us in. The only history I have is my my, my understanding from a Jane Sibbery song is that Montreal rioted once when the coach benched Rocket Richard? Is that true? Yeah. A city rioted because a coach benched their star player?
4: Well no, I thought he was suspended. I mean I mean I think oh, it was suspended? right. He, okay. I think he was suspended by the league. He basically he went I I mean he was not the cleanest player. More and this is Maurice Richard, just to be clear, not his oh. brother Henri. Um, okay. Maurice Richard. Uh, Henri was the pocket rocket. Maurice was just the ro- rocket Richard. Anyway, but Maurice Richard, yeah, he was not a clean player. Um, I mean, nobody was clean back when he played, so I don't think he was disproportionately due, but it, there was like a, a essentially a fight during a game, and he took his stick and basically hit somebody over the head with it. (laughs) Um, And they weren't wearing helmets back then just for the record. (laughs) So even more, I mean, that that would get you suspended now, but it was even worse back then. I think they suspended him for maybe for like uh, not an entire season, but maybe for like the remainder of the season, I think, or something like that. And Montreal rioted for, for that.
2: Okay, so you've also corrected me on which Richard we're talking about. Good yeah.
4: Lord, nothing about hockey. But I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a you. fun story. But yeah, and, and it's a good read. Some people should check it. Check out like you know some like on Wikipedia or whatever the story of it because it just shows again Montreal is a very passionate sports city about one specific sport.
2: Well, so the Canadians, you know, they've got this wonderful divisional lineup, this COVID divisional yeah. thing going on in, in NHL, and so all the Canadian clubs are playing each other. And and Montreal's having a decent season. Yeah, no. right now have the Leafs looking really good. So the Leafs, of course, are darlings of the analytics community because Kyle Dubas is their general manager, and he's been a darling of the analytics community for a while that long suffering underperforming Toronto Maple Leafs they haven't won a national championship or a championship and they've won the cup in 50.
4: you know, and I mean, I love this kind of setup for this season because a, it does guarantee a, a, many of these long suffering Canadian teams, at least one of them get to the final four by construction. <laughs> but beyond that, it actually sets up, I think, you know, just because of the teams that are good right now, some potential super interesting Matt, like kind of original six matchups. This is the only season <laughs> You know, assuming we go back to where things are, where we're go- we could potentially have a Boston versus Montreal Stanley Cup final. So oh Shane, my. let me
1: ask you a quick how question. How amazing would that I, be? Something I put in the rundown. Toronto right now is on pace. Uh, there's always a team that's on pace every year. And no one's getting yeah. there. But Toronto right now is on pace for 129 and a half points, which would be the third best ever. Now, my question to you is, would you have to put an asterisk next to it if they were to break the record? Because A, they're not traveling as much. And B, they're playing the same teams over and over and over again. And that has to diminish the accomplishment of, I think it was the Canadians that had 131 points or one. Thirty-two or something. Yeah. Would you agree for that? I mean, I know you're not an asterisk guy. You know I'm an asterisk. No, I mean th- there guy. would You'd be an asterisk, to, right? And
4: there would be an asterisk with it for the exact mention. I'm kind of intrigued since you brought it up. I'm just kind of intrigued in general by how much like whether we're going to see more kind of like kind of disparity in records just like kind of because it's the, there's this within division thing it's almost like we're setting up like kind of a like a college football power conference kind of setup or whatever where you know the teams that are truly dominant in a particular division can have even more opportunity to beat up on the teams that are truly not so i you you might even see some expansion kind of of like the usual range of re, of, of seasonal total records on both. Follow-
1: does anybody has anyone ever looked at this let's say a bad team plays a good team Okay. Does the more often a bad team plays a good team widen the separation between a bad team and a good team? In other words, does the good team learn? even more so? Let's just say we just take ELO ratings and say, what's the probability A beats B? And now we have A playing C, but A plays B a lot more. Does that give A an even greater opportunity? Because that's my argument here, is that Toronto, by playing only six or seven other teams, they know how to beat them now. They don't need to focus, and they're a really good team, and that's going to give them an even greater advantage, or is that not right?
2: Mostly, I feel like I would argue the other way. It's a fair question empirically, but if anything, you know, the the guys who are weaker need to come up with innovative strategies and learn to take chances and things like that. I feel like there's more opportunity for them. In
4: some yeah, sense. I mean, my the kind of extra spread I would be arguing from this kind of like current like divisional schedule, I would see more that, you know, if you truly, but if there are two teams in a division that are truly very different in terms of their uh, like quality, the more they play each other, the more they'll actually realize that difference in quality. Right. I mean, like um, a bad a bad team, a truly bad team can beat a truly good team like once, you know, best of three or something like that. But if they're playing each other 15 times a season, I think you're going to get a, a greater sort of like spread in their records if they one team is truly good and one team is truly bad.
2: Also, you're I think you're going to a more complicated argument than you need. I mean the simplest explanation would just be what if they get a weak conference? They they had a weak division and they get to play the unusually they're yeah. playing just a a, yeah. a division dominated schedule and it turns out that 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 the Canadian division, the North division is pretty weak. I mean they have three of the seven teams are in the bottom, you know, eight of the Yeah. Age. And so essentially the, the Leafs are getting it a little bit easier scheduled than some of the other. Consider like the Bruins, they, they have,
4: you know, they're, they're, their divisions. Yeah, more that more Atlantic Conference higher. or whatever we're calling it,
1: I guess. Well, you East understand the average one relatively. loss record of all those divisions are the same. Maybe the reason the other one looks weaker is because Toronto's beating everybody and so they look bad
4: yeah but i mean like you know i mean they're not even <laughs> well, hope, the only i hope team. our power rankings can adjust for that kind of that's what thing. they're we're not even the for.
1: only team with only three losses right no, now look, i mean just, if you look just, at
4: the bruins record they also have
1: a i know just quickly record. going back to our comment about Elo e- rating this is an example of a non-overlapping design just remember yeah, that that's true mm-hmm. that's
4: true yeah. that's a that
2: that's a connection to the evo we didn't mm-hmm. anticipate shane we need to bring some more hockey in here let's pick a game and pay attention to tell us when one of the a couple of the when's florida playing carolina that looks like the top two teams in the central oh i'd that's have on. to check kind that. of the schedule Let's talk uh, about
4: but that. yeah i'll i'll i'll, I'll keep I'll, I'll keep us tuned in as far as some cool matchups coming up all right guys
2: a little bit of an all-time great conversation and a little bit of nhl conversation we have got one more this has been three quarters we got one more quarter to go we have a conversation with brad spielberger of-
1: you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back
2: Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Every week, every week we do this. And most weeks in the fourth quarter, we do an interview. This week is one of those weeks. We have Brad Spielberger. Brad is a relatively new hire over at PFF, but a longtime analyst in the sports world coming from over the cap, salary cap expertise, has some super interesting research on the NFL draft, but more generally, um, cap and draft and free agency and GM type articles all over PFF these days. So it's a real delight to welcome Brad to the show for the first time. Howdy, Brad. How are you?
3: Doing great. Thank you for having me on. And uh, you mentioned uh, the draft research, which some of it was inspired by yourself. So I'm, I'm you know, happy to be here.
2: Well, that's always fun to hear, of course. And of co- and we're in the draft season. You know, it's, it's not long after the Super Bowl is over. I'd say, you know, 20 minutes or so before people turn their attention to the NFL draft. And so more and more over the next couple of months, we'll be talking about this stuff, and it'll be fun to read what you're having to say about it um, between now and then. Brad, before we get into some of those details, give us more about yourself. We are on pretty friendly terms with PFF. We talk to most of those guys at some point during the year, and some of those guys a lot. And um, so we're always interested. They seem to have a great eye for talent. So their endorsement is a big one. Um, but what have you been doing before you landed with those guys and how did you get started in this business?
3: Yeah. So uh, going back to undergrad, uh, I I went to Vanderbilt and was an economics major. And uh, if you guys know that the late, great John Vrooman, uh, who was kind of a sports economics pioneer um, who, you know, really in a lot of ways started researching things that, you know, hadn't really been talked about or, you know, discussed at a high level uh, and just kind of fell in love with the idea of potentially, you know, merging my love for sports with my you know love for finance and and all those things. Uh, so coming out of college, you know, was kind of inspired that it, it was possible that it was it wasn't just a pipe dream and something I could pursue. Um, and then made the decision to go to law school uh, to pursue, pursue a further degree. Uh, and Tulane uh, has a notable sports law program, um, and so I was able to you know meet uh, Jason Fitzgerald who, who runs OverTheCap.com, which is you know the preeminent. Ah, uh, contract and salary cap website out there. You know, NFL teams use it. Folks like to use it as a resource. Um, so yeah, just started working with him and, and and kind of doing more and more work there. Uh, and and the way the whole the the whole story kind of connects is that Tulane hosts a, a mock negotiation competition through the law school, where we invite people in um, from all across the country. It was actually international uh, a couple years there. Uh, And basically we say, okay, you're Amari Cooper's agent, you're the Dallas Cowboys, you're going to sit down in this room, you know, four people, two per side, and just go back and forth using, you know, some statistical comparisons, and then some contractual comparisons, of course, um, and just try to come to a deal and kind of negotiate the the boilerplate, um, but also the kind of the finer points of the deal. Um, and, And so Jason Fitzgerald helps us run that. Uh, and one year he recommended we have Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus as a, a judge. All right, um, so I you know, okay. got to meet him as well. And, and that's kind of how you know the ball started rolling there.
2: And now we have all the players on the stage. Well done. Okay, so give us a little bit of a timeline. What year did you graduate Vanderbilt? And then when did you come out of
3: Tulane Law? So I graduated Vanderbilt in 2016. Um, took a year to work. Uh, followed my smarter half. Uh, my wife, who's a doctor, down to New Orleans. Um, and it wasn't entirely sure if I wanted to go business school or law school at that point. Um, and, and then ultimately kind of luckily, uh, I shouldn't say luckily, but it was nice The Tulane, uh, it really does. It has like a phenomenal sports law program in particular. It's not really a thing at every law school, um, right. kind of a niche area. Um, but for, you know, for example, Mike Tannenbaum is kind of a big name and he's done a lot for the program and really helped. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, and so kind of that, that kind of helped make that decision for me um and just pursued that you know full-fledged um and yeah and then graduated from there 2020 uh so last year uh started working with pff in june so about a month later um and and that brings us to today
2: so this i mean even though you did do sports law and you kind of had an eye on sports law it's still a little unusual to graduate law school and go to work for pff i mean that's talk a little bit about that because one, one i mean we talk to people all over sports analytics and increasingly we see people arrive from different backgrounds and this is certainly a different background. So you, you ran across Eric at a, at a mock negotiation tournament, but then how does it go that you graduate Tulane law and go to work for PFF?
3: Yeah. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, my second semester of law school, obviously, you know, the pandemic hits in March. And so everything's kind of thrown for a loop. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I knew I'd always wanted to pursue sports. I had an internship with the Minnesota Vikings after my second year of law school, and that only, you know, bolstered that belief that I really wanted to go into it. But as you mentioned, it's not the most traditional uh, route. A lot of them will tell you, you know, either agents or team side guys, say, hey, go work for a firm for a couple of years, kind of get the legal background and then make that jump. Right. Uh, but, but some people do go straight in. You know, there's, there's a couple you know, mentors, you know, of mine that have also you know done similar things. So always hoped and, and thought it was possible on the back burner. Um, yeah, and was able to, you know, I think a big part of it as well is that PFF, you know, wants to be a leader and a, and a you know, producer of information on every aspect of football, you know, a one stop shop, so to speak, where teams can come <laughs> and, and learn everything about the game and get, get data and information about every aspect of the game. Um, and the guys that are over the cap, it's incredible. They're all they all have full-time jobs. Over the cap is a passion project. It's it's not a you know they don't really make money from it even. It's any any money they do make is put right back into the site. Um, yeah. It's all about just sharing a love that they have. And so I, I kind of you know I think it was a natural kind of how I'll bridge the gap. I'll kind of be that that throughway between the two organizations. Um, and it was kind of just a natural fit.
2: Got it. So part of the story here is PFF continuing to build out their portfolio. I mean we, we've been we've been followers long enough to know that they went from being kind of a charting service really in the beginning to adding some real analytics capability and then they've become a little bit more consumer forward at the same time developing a team consulting it's really interesting to see how it's developed and one of the things that you're suggesting is that they're they want to play in the cap space as well and obviously for professional teams this is a major consideration i think for, for a long time, it was kind of below the radar for most fans. But increasingly, people are aware that cap is a major consideration. Can you talk a little bit about what how you would characterize the NFL cap awareness and cap sophistication? You know, for a long time, the other leagues were significantly more advanced than the NFL. And I, I remember what trade was it? What running back did the Browns send Early in the season, a high draft pick. They sent him early on. They just dumped his contract.
3: Basically. Oh, Trent Richardson, and Trent
2: Richardson. Yeah, and it was like a it was like a basketball move. You know, he's like a mid season basketball move, and just hadn't been seen in football before. And that was the Browns, who were known as pretty, pretty advanced on these things. So, and also another, obviously closer to home, example is is Howie Roseman, with general manager, with the. With the Eagles, came up kind of on the cap side, and has been a very successful GM, and that might have helped push things along as well. But where would you say the league is now in sophistication, and how would you characterize what goes on around salary caps in the NFL?
3: Yeah, no. So you know, the first salary cap in the NFL was 1994, actually the year I was born. So maybe that was prophetic. But oh my, okay. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so it's a relatively new, you know, phenomenon. And then I think a huge, you know, later component was 2011 was the introduction of the rookie wage scale. So, you know, prior to that point, teams were also negotiating rookie contracts. I think we remember like Sam Bradford and Matt Stafford signing these huge kind of six year deals, you know, with tons of guarantees and they hadn't even played a snap yet. So that rookie wage scale in 2011, again, I think kind of reset the understanding of, you know, there's kind of an untapped market here of doing further research, Um, of kind of, you know, not letting the the market be dictated just by thoughts and feelings and just kind of how many teams are interested, how many suitors are available, but that you can actually kind of put some research and data behind it. And now with the rookie wage scale, how you can explore, you know, surplus value or how you have, you know, alternatives to it. Do we pay this guy in free agency or do we take this, you know, third round pick instead? Because, you know, he might give you 80% of the the production, but he'll be, you know, worth, you know, far less stuff like that. So I'm with you. I think it's a bit behind other leagues, and um, that I still think a lot of negotiations are kind of you, you shop around, you call a couple teams, say, hey, what do you think my guy's worth? Um, kind of gauge the market from that perspective. Um, and, and that kind of informs what you're asking for or what you're looking for from the you know, agency perspective. And so I still think it's kind of in the infancy of truly putting some of our data and and looking at historical contracts, how they have played out, um, looking at, you know, positional value, things like that. Um, to kind of truly inform going forward how the position markets are going to be treated, you know. Going
2: forward. I, want to, I want to talk about position value here in a minute because I love what you and Jason did in the book on that. And that's, I think, one of the most important frontiers in football analytics. But before we do that, our, let's stay with the salary cap thing because in basketball, when people make trades, I mean, you can barely unless you're a basketball cap guy, you can barely follow the dialogue because so much of the trade value is in the contracts. Are there examples in the NFL that you can point to where you think that's beginning to be to play a bigger role? I mean, so, you know, Carson Wentz, for example, he, he, there's there are, there are cap considerations on both sides when when they make that trade. Can you can you kind of give us an example of the role of these cap considerations by pointing to a specific trade?
3: Yeah, so I still do think that, you know, I had kind of have a thing I say a lot on Twitter, which is that. NFL trades are as much about the contract as they are the player. Of course, the value is derived by the guy's production and, and, and how he does on the field. But I still think at the end of the day, you know, the team is looking at it from the perspective of what are we taking on financially? And then how can we you know make that work with the rest of our roster? Um, but the big piece with the, with the Wentz deal, and, and I think that also factors in a lot from the team that's shipping the player out, um, is this sunk cost consideration and that you don't move the full contract on to the new team. Um, you know, prorated money, bonus money stays with the original team. So there's this sunk, sunk cost component that I think has is the reason why we see way less trades in the NFL as compared to other leagues. Um, but again, like this offseason, it might be shifting, you know, signaling a shift in that line of thinking a bit.
2: So you're saying you think that the, what the behavioral psychologists would call sunk cost fallacy impedes trades. Teams don't want to take that hit that they have to incur if they move a player when they've
3: got guaranteed money. I do, and I also think the NFL in general um, it, it kind of pr- values continuity and, and values, you know, roster staying the same, because they're kind of more about the logo and more about the team than they are the player. Um, you know, individuals are not the face of the franchise. You know, it's still, you know, the, the star for the Dallas Cowboys It's not any individual player. So I think player movement to them is just less attractive. Um, I think that, like the whole idea of team building and having this core and this identity and and working around that. Um, just kind of seems to be you know the status quo that has still yet to be challenged
2: okay so we may be seeing some moves but you know it's um, that may be an unfortunate consequence in some ways of analytics because there are there is so much player movement in some of the in some of the more analytics forward leagues uh, last question on this front you know if if we were, if we can kind of roughly characterize analyticsly how analytics how analytically sophisticated the teams are thirty two teams. So there's pretty big variation. There are some that are way out in front. There are a lot of new entrants, but there are some laggards. Can we say something similar with salary cap sophistication? Are you aware of who are the stars or who are the most highly regarded salary cap managers out there? Is there such a distinction?
3: Yeah, no. So I would think it's, I would say it's kind of similar to analytics departments, like you mentioned, where some teams are, you know, a bit ahead of others. Uh, at this point, all 32 have them, but how many are actually listening to them? I, I think is a smaller number than 32, and, and I think it's a similar situation from the cap standpoint, where there are some teams that turn to their capologist uh, and just say, "Hey, we, we're signing this guy. He wants this much. You know, we, we're willing to go here. Go make it work. Go, you know, cook the books, move the numbers around, whatever you have to do to make it fit. Uh, but don't push back on that value. You know, the coach and the GM says this. Those, you know, I would say 90% of those guys are football guys, so to speak." Um, and the cap guy is really just kind of doing what they asked him to do. Uh, but we are seeing a couple teams now, um, for example, the Carolina Panthers. They've hired a guy who, who is has a cap background, uh, Samir Suleiman, who was with the, the Steelers. But his job is now it's kind of overseeing both the analytics department and the salary cap. And I think that is still a very young market. Um, you know, they're all running their numbers and, and, and guesstimating you know, market values, things like that. But I think it's more just looking at historical pay. And then just looking at you know how many suitors or, or, or how many guys this position are going to be available to kind of look at scarcity things like that but i don't think they're truly taking that next step to dictate their own value and determine their own value and ignore what the market has told them before um, but i think it is something that's going to be kind of emerging in these next couple of years
2: all right so one of the things you're saying right there i think is very important that is there's a there's one level of sophistication which is just to pay more attention to it to pay more attention to historical data to get a sense of the value in the market and um to help that inform decisions great but you're saying yeah you really need to go one step further because there's no there's nothing that really suggests the past market has been correct it's a little it's a little bit of a big step to say you know the the nfl labor market is an efficient one and we can just take that to be gospel so that's an interesting idea and i think that's one of the places that you went to with your book with jason so um we're, we're just a quick reminder to the folks listening here. We're talking to Brad Spielberger. Brad is a salary cap analyst for Pro Football Focus, PFF. We often have some PFF folks on here. He was um, with um, – um, I just dropped the name of the salary cap outfit that you were working with. Before. Oh, Over
3: the Cap, Dr. Over the Cap,
2: right, right. And that's what Jason runs. So you've got this collaboration with Jason Fitzgerald. You've got a book out called The Drafting Stage. And would love to hear a little bit about it, especially as we roll into uh, as we roll into the NFL draft season. A lot of people have come before you on this and you lead the book talking about the different efforts. And yes, uh, my work with uh, with Dick Thaler is one of those pieces. But what do you feel like your contribution is here? What do you and I would, it's just like why? what's different about this? And then we'll talk about what you found and what your conclusions are.
3: Yeah, I think the main difference, um, which I think we, we believe kind of spoke to the teams and, and put it in perspective that, um, you know, was kind of easy to, t- to digest was that you look, we looked at the draft picks and the players themselves by what is their surplus value over the market at that position. So, you know, we, when we wanted to compare across positions at one draft pick, the example in there, you know, the big example in there is basically the number two pick. You had Saquon Barkley, you know, in 2018 and then Nick Bosa in 2019. So, even if those two guys, let's say they both become the, the top player at their position. For Saquon Barkley, you're, pay, you're already paying him on his rookie deal. He became the fifth highest paid running back in the NFL. And I want to say eight and, and change million uh, on a per year basis. And that was, you know, at the time was fifth. Whereas Nick Bosa making eight million per year was like the 37th or 38th highest paid edge rusher. So it started just by looking at, let's not look at these picks as who's the best player, who's going to be the best at their spot, but what is the value you're getting over the the opportunity cost of, we're going to pay this guy in free agency because that's your decision, right? Are we going to draft at this position? And if not, are we going to pay someone to, you know, fill that hole? So what we did is we created basically the top five based on average per year um, for each position in each off season. And then what the second contract of each rookie was, you know, by a percentage of that top five. So if a guy came to market and signed for, you know, 5 million per year, and the average of the, of the top five wide receivers was $10 million per year, then he was 50% of top five APY. Um, and just kind of, you know, slotted that for every, every deal, um, for every rookie contract player going back a number of years. Um, just to kind of say, okay, here's what you can expect to get from this player. Again, ignoring what they contribute on the field, but more just this is what the type of guy it'll be. Will he be a starter, you know, a high-level starter, mid-level starter, backup, stuff like that? Um, and then they can make their own decisions on how they value the contribution from a positional perspective.
2: Okay, so two—I think two moves there. One, you 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 go and look at the second contracts essentially as a way to look at a player's value. You're 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 evaluating what people get in the draft by what happens to them eventually, long term. Like the true true skill is revealed over the free market price that, that in year five or whatever it is. And there's some complications there, but you but you navigate those. The other move is, I think, the, the bigger innovation, which is this, you make it all relative within position. And it introduces quite explicitly positional value in the draft in a way that has mostly been missing. And we talk about it, and people argue about it, and some people are much more interested in using it than others, but it hasn't been incorporated very comprehensively. And you guys do a great job. Spielberg and Fitzgerald, The Drafting Stage, this new book, you guys do a great job of kind of making it quite plain. And your Barkley Bosa example is just fantastic. And people, I mean, people argued about Saquon Barkley when they came out. Lots of folks thought that was a was a bad decision, to take a running back that high in the draft. But to say you're instantly making him one of the top five paid paid running backs compared to Bosa, who's only you know who's done fantastically and people thought very highly of, but you're going to pay him the 37th or 38th best edge rusher in the league. Pretty clearly, the bargain is on taking the edge rusher. So, Brad, tell, tell me one wrinkle here. I I think all of us that come into the draft might get caught up in absolutes and reading your book, it strikes me that maybe a little more nuance is required. I mean, can we really say what you should always do about quarterbacks without knowing how deep a quarterback draft is? I mean, some years there's like two guys that people think are first round talent and you look, this is a noisy process. So no one sees this perfectly, but broadly they get it correctly. Some years it's two guys. Some years it's six. Shouldn't the prescriptions for a team be different if they're shot if they're quarterback shopping in a year where there's two than when there's six?
3: Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think that's an easy wrinkle, and that's even something that I've kind of discussed. You know, getting into the the wins above replacement. You know, the WAR data at PFF is scarcity and just the the availability of a guy at whatever position. You know, that can do you know X contribution. So like Aaron Donald, the thirteenth overall back at the time, people probably would have said. You know, he's an interior run defender or no, interior defender. He's, you know, undersized, stuff like that. We didn't realize that, you know, interior pass rush, interior pressure can be tremendously valuable, things like that. So should you take the fifth quarterback off the board or should you take the top guy at exposition? position? Definitely one wrinkle that comes into play. Uh, yeah, we're not suggesting you should just continue to take quarterbacks, you know, for the first 20 picks just because the, the potential value is higher. Um, no, at a certain point, there has to be consideration of, this guy is the best player available at this position, so you know that kind of weighs in as well. But there are, of course, extreme examples, you know, like like the example we made with, with running back. But but yeah, that definitely is a consideration as well. Um, so another component of the book was looking at, you know, how frequently are you finding edge rusher? For example, you don't find elite edge rushers after like the third round, like they don't exist. So you know that that kind of drives value. <laughs> that would say, okay, it probably suggests we take them earlier because there are innate physical ability components to this that the ceiling cannot be reached unless the guy is like a physical specimen. That's just, that's just the reality of the situation. Um, left tackle is another one. Um, so yeah. So, so that also you have to cook that in and consider that as well. You can't be, like you said, just absolutes all the time and just say, you know, quarterback forever, because the, you know, the, the potential is at the highest.
2: Well, there, 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 there's lots of, I'm not, I'm not necessarily accusing you, you guys on that, you know, it's, it's just it's the, the dialogue. In fact, I'm accusing myself as much as I am anybody. If you need a quarterback, then it's just much easier to say trade down in a year like 2021, where there are a lot of candidates and who's really to say which of these guys is going to be best than it is in some other years where there just aren't as many candidates. This, this You're suggesting something that I think is quite hard and rarely done. And that is to consider alternative means of acquisition whenever you're making these choices. I mean, it's it's kind of impossible to say what you should. Well, it's even... It's even harder than that, Brad. Or the problem is even simpler in some sense. It's hard to say what to do in round one if you don't know what you're going to do in round two. You, you kind of have a you kind of have to optimize across all seven or ten or however many picks you have at a given year, or three if you're the Redskins. But you, it, you're saying not only do you have to optimize across the draft you have to optimize across other channels of acquisition as well, like free agency or like keeping your own guys, and you just. You, you really can't answer. Why, if you make one, if you if you play one card, you constrain all the other plays you're going to have. And so the the optimal GM decision making process is to look at all these things simultaneously, which is really hard. Brad, what are they supposed to do about this? I mean, it's easy for you to sit there in your comfort of your home saying, hey, man, you're supposed to consider what the free agent market looks like before you
3: draft that edge rusher. I mean, is anybody doing this? Yeah, no, that's a very fair, for sure. I would say the first, to the first piece, um, I've, I've been told by a handful of folks um, you know, in teams, like I think you're probably overestimating how easy it is to find a trade down partner. Um, so, so yeah, that's obviously a huge component. And then, yeah, when you're trying to balance various you know, channels of acquisition, again, you don't know which free agents are, are going to be willing to sign with you. So there's no guarantees from that perspective. Um, I will say to the draft piece, though, I think the teams underestimate kind of, you know, we, there's this whole debate about, you know, drafting for need versus best player available and all of that. Um, and, and I do think that in football, I say a roster is never set. Like, because, because we know injuries are just a, a fact of the game and are just, like, should be expected, um, you know, guys dropping off happens, stuff like that. You know, I, I think teams should shy away from thinking they're ever set at a position, unless they're, you know, five guys deep at one spot, of course, but that's where I would push back a little bit and say, hey, look, like, look at – you know, C.D. Lamb for the Cowboys last year. They probably thought, look, we have Amari Cooper, we have Michael Gallup, we have good, re- with we good weapons there. But there's no reason not to take a C.D. Lamb. And, and look, now they can maybe move Gallup or, or another. They didn't spend in free agency to get their wide receiver three stuff like that. So I agree that it's way more complicated. Sitting, you know, sitting here at home, I can be an armchair GM. I totally understand <laughs> that, but. One pushback I would say is you're never set at a position on NFL roster because for all, you know, your top guy or your second guy or, or two of your depth guys, you know, could go down for the season at any moment.
2: Right. So, I mean, again, Brad, you know, when I'm criticizing you for giving advice from the sidelines, I'm criticizing myself as well. It's just easier. Um, so, so I, I love this. And so, you know, it's, it, what I'm beginning to hear is that there are a handful of rules that one might have in a draft philosophy And generally apply but then understand that there are going to be exceptions and understand that there are contextual details that might push things around but one of the rules you're suggesting is best player available and um i mean let's uh, let me test you on that a little bit and this is close to home didn't the saints take like uh, interior offensive lineman a couple of years ago, even though they, had, they were totally stacked in the interior offensive line, they took him really high. I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up, right? You must know this example. So You're
3: probably thinking of Andres Pete, uh, who was supposed to be a left tackle. He's now an interior offensive lineman, but he when drafted was not supposed to be an interior offensive lineman.
2: I'm actually thinking about a center or a guard or some absurd uh-huh. thing, and they well, already this, had like this, re- yeah, it might have been this past year. Cesar Ruiz it was,
3: was this past year, yes. Yeah. So that was for sure. He's a center, um, an interior offensive line. You know, we have kind of seen it It can be a, a bit of a replaceable position. Um, you can kind of filter guys in from the guard spots and center as well. So, yes, that is fair. I think the, the final contextual piece you could add in, too, is kind of what is the motivation of each team? I kind of push back on attacking a window, so to speak, um, but, right. you know, clearly the Saints were going to do whatever it took to maximize Drew Brees' final years of his career. And in their opinion, they say let's just take the best interior offensive lineman available. It might not be the best value pick long-term, but it plugs a hole, you know, for 2020.
2: There are so many ways we can hindsight these poor GMs. I mean, just the infinite, infinite degrees of freedom we have in picking problems with previous drafts. Hey, before we let you go, I want to hear about this. One of the most recent articles you have up on – trading picks for supposed sure things. I love, even in the title of the article, sure thing is in quotes. And this is, an, this is something that came up with this Rams-Lions trade because, you know, supposedly the Lions are getting a sure thing quarterback. And, and there are these quotes from the, some, some folks with the Rams who said they just don't value, they don't value draft picks very much. And, and, and the implication was that's because you can go get a sure thing with the trade. So what was your take on this? And you write this in, in the, I think it was about a week ago in, at
0: PFF.
3: Yeah. So yeah, they, they've now, they're going to go from 2017 to 2023 without a first round pick. Um, you know, obviously Goff was the first one. They moved a couple future picks to get him. And, and now it's, you know, snowballed from there. Jalen Ramsey, obviously now Stafford. And yeah, they, their logic was basically, it's more of a sure thing to take, a, you know, a known veteran, um, over a potentially good draft pick but I think that ignores again just the volatility of N- of the NFL um, in that I mean look Matt Stafford missed half the season last you know in 2019 so you never know there but also again it, it again ignores you know our big component of the book which is surplus value where you know getting a Jalen Ramsey and he's been phenomenal as a Ram no question he's also the highest paid corner by like 30 percent above the market so, right. so you're kind of ignoring a huge component of, of that as well so The article is anecdotal. I obviously do. We try not to be anecdotal in anything we do at PFF. Um, But if you just look at the history of trades, I started with the Jay Cutler trade in 2009 um, because it was actually the exact same trade package. It was a a two first, a third and Kyle Orton, which maybe that's a bit insulting to Jared Koff to say it's the same package, but that was the start. And it went through all of them. And just anecdotally, you would take the picks over the player 90% of the time. Mm -hmm. And and then it also just kind of looked at just averages we've created with our, PFF wins above replacement draft chart and just say the average player, regardless of position at this pick, should give you X more. Um, yeah, that's just not really the case. Um, and that ignores kind of the, the money component as well. So, you know, I think again with them, it's another, you know, throw context in stuff like that. They have all these good pieces. They have a lot of good players. They're clearly close to getting over the top. And they feel, I mean, you can kind of look at the wins comparison as well. They feel like You could also argue it's a waste to have this good of a roster, but not be set at the most important position in the sport. Uh, You know, it would be foolish to be kind of, you know, frugal in that sense. Uh, And there's a a solid argument there. But the overarching argument of first round picks are are questionable and, and aren't good. You know, I had to push back on that a bit.
2: I'm glad you did. It was worth pushing back on. Listen, Brad, glad you joined us today. Glad to get a chance to meet you, to hear about your work. And to give you um, a little bit more uh, to pimp your book a little bit more uh, uh, while we have a chance. Brad Spielberger with PFF. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much. You can follow Brad, by the way, on Twitter. It's at PFF underscore Brad. Those PFF guys all get the PFF prefix at PFF underscore Brad for Spielberger's work. He's joining them to do some uh, focus more on the salary cap side as PFF continues to build out their offerings. That has been the fourth quarter, and that's another show, another two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week for the whole crew. Shane Jensen, who slid in here quietly in the last 15 minutes. Audie Weiner, who sat by quietly. For Eric Bradlow, the missing partner, who's going to join us back for the rest of the show next week. Thank you to all you listeners. Come back and join us next week between now and then.